Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In his book, The Unintended Reformation, How a Religious Revolution Secularized Society, Notre Dame history professor Brad Gregory shows how the unsolved doctrinal disagreements and religious and political conflicts of the 16th and 17th century Europe continue to influence American political, social, intellectual, and economic life today. He asks what propelled the West into a trajectory of pluralism, polarization, and consumerism. And he finds answers deep in our medieval Christian past. Brad Gregory is a USU alum. He returns to Logan to give a presentation in the Tanner Talks series from the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences. That talk, by the way, to which you are invited, is today at noon in USU Library Room 101. And he joins us for the hour here on Access Utah. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Let's start with your roots as an Aggie. <laughs> sure. You, uh, you're an alum. You, uh, I guess you're, you're in the marching band. And uh, what, what else? <laughs> I, I must have studied history. <laughs> yes, I did. Thanks. Uh, yes, I originally came to Utah State like quite a few out-of-state students, I think, with aspirations to study natural resources. I thought I was going to study forestry or wildlife science or something like that. And it took me a while to get to history. I actually didn't uh, settle on my history major until the beginning of my senior year. Uh, had was a psychology major for a while, was very deeply involved in music. You alluded to my participation in the marching band. I was also involved in a, quite, a, quite another variety of uh, performing groups at Utah State. I, I took a year of music composition and theory, uh, spent my junior year abroad studying philosophy uh, at the Catholic University of Leuven in Belgium, and it wasn't until I came back uh, the beginning of my senior year that I, that I settled on uh, history. But uh, I can assure all listeners and those that might be interested that my, my years at Utah State were indeed uh, really wonderful college years and, and, and proved formative for my, my later development. You were telling me that uh, it was formative for you, right? It was an influence on you to be a uh, Midwestern Catholic boy coming to the uh, heart of Mormondom for his uh, – <laughs> For his college experience, how, how so? How did this influence you? Well, that was uh, yes, that's that's absolutely true. Um, I had never met uh, a member of the LDS Church at all in my first eighteen years growing up in a fairly small town in northern Illinois, and so uh, suddenly to find myself in I, I I knew of course about the the LDS subculture and uh, knew that I was coming to Utah and that that was going to be a, a you know a part of my experience here. Um, but I had never, uh, I'd, I'd never really been a member of a, a small religious minority in a in a in a dominant uh, religious subculture like that, uh, to which I was not, you know, uh, or in which I was not a member, and so um, you know that experience of um, trying to make sense of uh, people's beliefs and practices and priorities and so forth, the way that they led their lives and and trying to to understand that was was very influential in the ways that then later. Uh, when I went, when I got into graduate school, and I decided I was going to specialize in in the history of the late Middle Ages and the Reformation era, of trying to understand in, in that way how those people, from their vantage points, with 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 their worldview, with the the commitments and the ideas and and priorities that they had, how did they make sense of things and so forth? So there was a there was a kind of um, direct experiential kind of transference, as it were, from my experience in trying to to understand. Uh, the LDS men and women and fellow students and so forth around me, and then how I would uh, apply those same kinds of, of skills and, and, and sensibilities in trying to understand people from the distant past. So valuable to get an experience as an outsider. That's a, Absolutely. By definition, if you're going back in time, you're, you're an outsider. We are all outsiders with respect to the distant past. That's right. Yeah. What, uh, what would you suggest to you know, the people you know, 
trying to understand a different culture present time or going back in history. What are some of the things you learned from that? Um, well, I think I think the most important prerequisite is um, a, enough self-awareness and self-discipline to be as honest as, as one can with oneself about the necessity of distinguishing your own commitments and beliefs and ways of seeing things from those of the people that you're trying to understand. That's the, the key, to, to my mind, that's the key to trying to understand uh, somebody from a different culture or somebody from a different time period. The, I think the kind of indispensable starting point for, for all good history is um, understanding the difference between the question, what, is something, what, is, what does something mean to me, and what does something, some, something mean to whoever it is, uh, to whom it is important. So the question's not, uh, why does this matter to me, but why did it matter to them? And that's that's the that's the really the key difference. And I think that you know becoming aware of that in a in a, a personal kind of first person sort of way can be the stepping stone to applying it. Well, in my case, um, uh, in in terms of trying to understand people from a past historical epoch, one could also, for example, I think use similar kinds of skills uh, in in something like cultural anthropology, trying to understand people from a very different culture in our own time. Hmm. We're talking with Brad Gregory, who is a USU alum and is giving the uh, Tanner Talk uh, today for the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences. Talk is uh, today at noon on the USU campus, Library Room 101. The book is The Unintended Reformation, How a Religious Revolution Secularized Society. And uh, one of the main themes of of the book is... uh, the past is always with us, I suppose. That's, uh, you yes. know, and, it, and it affects us in a very real way today. Right. So we'll get into talking about that. Sometimes we compartmentalize these things. Uh, before we get into talking about the book, I, I want to talk about Notre Dame. We all know that Notre okay. Dame is a football-mad uh, <laughs> university. <laughs> you're a marching band guy. How, did, how does that – but uh, you were telling me you were an athlete in, in high school. Yes, right. Right. I mean, I I, I don't have any um, uh, uh, formal participation in any of the uh, varsity athletics at, at Notre Dame. Uh, nor do I have any formal participation in um, anything pertaining to the band there. Um, but yes, I was a, I was an athlete in high school. I was also very deeply and remained deeply involved in music, as I mentioned uh, here when I was here at Utah State. Um, uh, no, Notre Dame, I think, uh, carries with it, of course, around the country, the reputation, of, of course, for uh, having this extraordinary legacy of its football team and the, the many ways in which that is intertwined, actually in quite interesting sociological ways with the ways in which uh, American Catholic immigrants over the course of the 20th century became sort of accepted more and more into the mainstream of American culture. Uh, but those of us who teach at Notre Dame, those of us who are you know, professors there, I think we're always trying to do all that we can to show people and, and insist and provide the evidence uh, that, that Notre Dame is a, a very serious academic institution. I mean, it's a major research university, and there are certain certain aspects of it that, that really are, I think, quite surprising to people. I mean, over the last decade, for example, uh, Notre Dame has received, its, its faculty have received more uh, uh, scholarships, more fellowships from the National Endowment for the Humanities than any other university in the United States. So including all, yeah, all the Ivy Leagues and so forth, we, we actually have earned more. So uh, it's a very important and, I think, um, ambitious uh, academic institution in addition to, I mean, we're not going to scrap our football legacy. We want the football team to do well. We all understand that. Um, but we are first and foremost an academic institution and, and a serious one. There's some interesting tensions there. There have been some uh, you know, big-name institutions who in the past have at least floated the idea of scrapping football, scrapping, you know, or at least going to Division Three or something. Uh, but uh, football especially can really carry the banner, can it? Can get the 
it can advertise the university. So yeah, there's some trade-offs there. It certainly can, and I mean, I think um, I think there are uh, there are a lot of universities that would like to do over the course of a period of decades what Notre Dame, in fact, managed to do, which was to take um, a regional Catholic college and turn it into a a national, if not an internationally known university with its the success of its football team as integral to that. There are a lot of um, a lot of things that institutionally you have to do to safeguard that, I think, if you want to. And my own view is that I think very few uh, Division I football programs succeed in doing that. Um, I think Notre Dame is one of a, a handful of, of very small handful of Division I schools that insist on serious academic standards for its athletes. Um, we were the first football team in Division One ever to be both ranked number one and have the highest graduation rate for our football players in, in the fall of, of 2012. So when you're graduating, 98 or 99 percent of your uh, your football players and you you know are, are appearing regularly in the uh, near the top of the rankings, then I think you know you're, you're doing something well. And so we don't cut corners that way. I'm not going to mention any other names of any other institutions. Um, but I, I think that uh, most Americans uh, recognize that uh, it's not common for institutions to have both excellent uh, men's football and uh, adhere to rigorous academic standards for their athletes. Mm. We're talking with Brad Gregory. The book is The Unintended Reformation. The talk is uh, today at noon on the USU campus, uh, Library Room 101. This is the Tanner Talk for the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences. You're welcome to join this conversation, if uh, you would like, at uh, 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. Two people have liked our post. You can see a picture of Professor Gregory, uh, Carl Berger, and Rock Lim. Thank you for liking our post there. You can comment there, and you can reach us by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at uh, gmail.com. Um, this is a tortured segue into the, into the discussion <laughs> today, but uh, our talk about football uh, made me wonder, and, and, and this is the segue, the fact that I don't know the answer to this question, and I think a lot of people would not, um, is an illustration of, of how this is sort of, for us, distant past, talking about medieval um, Europe. And that's where you, you start. Mm -hmm. And uh, your, your thesis is how the effects of the Reformation right. on medieval Europe are still resonating today and affect us today. Right. But I, I got to wonder about sports. What uh, did, did medieval peoples play sport and was it important to them <laughs> they they did um uh you know i would say uh and this is not something i'm an expert on i should i should uh, preface it by saying that but uh for for medieval people sport was more a kind of release it was a it was a recreation more than it was a kind of uh competitive in the in the sense that we would recognize uh competitive sports i mean as nearly as i know um individual cities for example did not field teams that competed against one another they 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 had competitions in other in other venues um sometimes competitions over who could write the best uh, play at a certain time of the year and then they would perform them and so forth but but the notion of competitive sports as entertainment or and certainly as a as a um uh, as a career or anything of that sort was 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 not uh, part of the part of the uh culture of medieval europe mm. So let's jump in here. You're, one of the things you're pushing back against is an idea of compartmentalization. Mm -hmm. And this is growing up at universities, say, you you specialize in a field. If you're a medievalist, you don't concern yourself with modern uh, history and, and, and vice versa. Uh, you're saying that that can leave us with a distorted view of today, of our own 
of our own world. That's correct. And um, this was, um, in certain respects, one of the one of the most challenging uh, things that I needed to, um, in a sense, get past. Because, like all professional historians, I'm trained within certain chronological parameters. I, I am what's called in in professional historical circles an early modernist. So that means that. Uh, maybe I can stray a little bit back into the late Middle Ages to understand the setup for what it is that I do. I'm mostly interested in the 16th and 17th centuries, the early modern period, the way that we usually talk about it as historians, generally regarded as going from the early 16th uh, century up to, let's say, the time of the French Revolution at the end of the 18th. And so um, regardless of whether you're an early modernist or a medievalist or a modernist, the the kind of unstated uh, assumption is uh, that you you stay within that period. You, um, in a sense, take heed of what other historians have done for the periods preceding. You might have an interest in what those who study the period after you also do. But what you do as a historian is really confined to that period. Moreover, it's usually... Um, in terms of the kind of imperatives of the sorts of research we do, it dic- it's dictated also that you more or less have to specialize in a certain kind of history. In other words, you are a, a political historian, but not an intellectual historian, or you're an economic historian, but not a cultural historian. Thirdly, most historians are trained to specialize in a certain geographic region. So, for example, one might be uh, a medieval historian of the social history in England, or you might be a modern American uh, uh, cultural historian. Let's say you study after World War II or something. So there are all these ways in which the way in which history is done tends to be specialized and, and geared that way in the way that graduate students are trained, the way that one becomes a professional historian. Now, what I'm arguing in the book is that while that is perfectly appropriate and the right way to do history for answering lots of of kinds of historical questions. It can't really answer, to my mind, the most fundamental historical question that I think lots of people are interested in, which is how did the world that we're living in today come to be the way that it is? And it turns out, as I argue in the book, that if we want want to answer that question, we need a different way of thinking about historical change over time. We need to take into account a much longer period of time. We need to see the interrelationships among political and social and economic, intellectual, religious concerns. And we need to be willing to cross national and and linguistic linguistic boundaries. Um, So in order to answer a very simple, basic question, how did the world we're living in today come to be as it is, the world today for the purposes of the book, the Western world, Western Europe and North America, um, we have to uh, take into compass, really, we have, to, we have to reconceive in important ways how it is that historians ordinarily go about their work. Mm. And you point out we don't live our lives in compartments, right? Precisely. Uh, and so to understand Precisely. How got, and how, uh, how we are, the, the discipline has to change in that way. Exactly. Uh, so are you suggesting that uh, changes to the actual discipline of study of history <laughs> or, or just uh, people like you trying to, m- to connect the dots? Oh, that's a very good question because, of course, um, uh, I would be naive in the extreme if I thought that on the basis of my book, uh, history departments across the United States and perhaps further afield than that are suddenly going to change the way uh, that that we uh, train graduate students, that, that also, quite frankly, the ways in which we organize our curricula 
in history departments. I mean, if you if you look at the offerings for history courses uh, from most universities and colleges, you'll see also a mirroring of that same kind of arrangement that I've just that I've just described. I, I don't think that's going to happen, and I'm I'm not necessarily advocating for that. Um, as I said, many kinds of historical questions are perfectly appropriately addressed within those sorts of parameters. What I would, I, I suppose, I, I'm conceiving what it is that I do is a, is an important supplement to that, uh, not something that would replace it, uh, but but something that I think all historians ought to be aware of in in one way or another. We need to think about the complex ways in which the intertwined domains of human life not only uh, manifest themselves within a given historical epoch, but of course bear a legacy toward and and have an influence on what comes after them. Mm. Uh, I want to have you talk a little bit about this uh, this, this word that uh, pops up in your book, hyperpluralism, <laughs> and uh, I think a good illustration uh, the, the way I think about it is if I'm sitting next to a couple of people in today's world, I'm very unlikely to have similar views. Mm -hmm. In fact, I'm going to express those very different views. And the, the people on the other side of me would, would, would have the same. That not, wasn't not, not, not necessarily was the way it was in the medieval world, right? No, that's so yes. one shared worldview. Yes. I mean, to a large extent, it would, I mean, we can, th there are ways in which the, the kind of unity or coherence of um, medieval Europe can certainly be exaggerated. We know from research in the last couple of generations of medievalists, and there I am right referring to a certain kind of historical specialization that I was just talking about, but medievalists have shown with, without a shadow of a doubt, there's all kinds of local variation diversity, um, you know, certain things that are present in, in some towns and villages or regions and not in others and, and, and whatnot. That, that's undoubted in medieval Europe. And it, it goes along with the fact that this is a world of, of uh, slow transportation and communication where local traditions and ways of doing things are, are, are very important. Um, that said, what the what Latin Christendom in the Middle Ages had that I don't think we have in, in contemporary Western societies are shared institutions and, and practices and beliefs of a substantive kind. And of course, these are an expression of Latin Christianity in, in the, the, uh, the Western uh, medieval uh, civilizational context. And th what, those, what those provide is a kind of um, substantive way of, of understanding, providing a worldview for, for human life. I don't think we have something equivalent to that in the Western world today, not in terms of content or substance. We have it in formal terms. We have extremely powerful sovereign nation states. We have uh, a, a, an increasingly pervasive, if not all pervasive, market capitalism. Um, but in terms of the content of what people believe, what they think is important, how they think uh, human beings ought to live, what they believe morally and so forth, what we have, I think, empirically uh, and uncontroversially, is something that you were just alluding to in an anecdotal way yourself. The, a, an open-ended range of different ways that people make sense of their lives, their, their political opinions, their moral views, and so forth. And what, I'm argue, what I argue in the book is, however counterintuitive it might be, it is the unresolved religious disagreements among Protestants and between Catholics and Protestants in the 16th and 17th centuries that creates the, 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 the distant beginning of what we see the long-term descendant of in our in our own times in terms of what I call hyperpluralism mm. today. And I, I, I'm thinking of Monty Python, of course, you know, the great, <laughs> great philosophers. Uh, 
where the where the person tr- trying to get to them says you're all individuals, and then they uh, they collectively say yes, we are all individuals. Yeah, um, and that's sort of how I'm flashing on medieval world. Of course, that's that's not true. Right. But there is some enforcement, right? You. Oh, at least absolutely. an expression of you have a differing view that's going to be slapped down. No, absolutely. No, I mean there's I mean the, the the interesting thing about one of the one of the interesting paradoxes about medieval Christianity is that as I was just mentioning before, you've got a very you've got actually got a quite high tolerance for the expression of local differences and 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 really individual preferences in terms of the way that that uh, certain uh, uh, preferences within the boundaries of uh, Catholic Orthodoxy are expressed, but up to a point. Cross the line, and you're going to find yourselves, uh, depending on local particularities, uh, potentially in in very serious trouble. And this is uh, those those um, medieval groups that were defined as heretics and and punished and uh, as such, uh, like the Lollards in England, for example, or the Valdensians in in Italy and and parts of uh, south uh, southeastern France. Um, the ways that they they found themselves uh, outside the boundaries, however defined. And so, yes, there's no question that that was part. Of the that was part of the uh, part of the picture in the Middle Ages. I mean, I, I think it's important to to add. I think a lot of um, a lot of people today, partly because of the experience of the 20th century, tend to look back at the Middle Ages and think that the kind of policing or enforcement that we're talking about right now was sort of like Stalinist Russia, but only in the Middle Ages. I mean, something like that is really tremendously misleading. But there's nothing like the bureaucratic machinery or the governmental efficiency or, or the communications possibility or anything else. It doesn't mean that they didn't come down hard on, on people when they decided to. But the idea that somehow this was, you know, extensive, expansive control um, dictated from a central authority um, really doesn't doesn't match up to what was even possible in the Middle Ages. So this the sort of unified this 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 monolithic. Of course, we said it wasn't really, but right. Um, this start, starts to fragment with the Reformation, and in today's world, we can see this. Uh, it, it continues to to, to fragment. Um, so what what's the What's the the effect then? Well, I think um, you know some of the some of the manifestations I think that we see today in the United States now, and I, and I would say these the particularities of these expressions vary from country to country. They are contingent on quite short term um, cultural, political circumstances, and so forth. But for example, um, I think in 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 our own. Uh, American society today, I think we can see some of the most virulent disagreements over issues like, for example, gun control, over issues like uh, same-sex marriage, issues like abortion, and so forth. These are fundamental disagreements about really quite important issues, definitions really we could say about what is a person as far as abortion, what is a marriage in terms of of gay marriage, and and whether we ought to, to tolerate the widespread uh, proliferation of weapons in in private hands in the United States. What are the consequences of that, and so forth? These are deep disagreements that I think have have very widespread um, implications in the United States. If we, we we step back from that and 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 look, you know, retrospectively, ask the question: what, what is it structurally, historically, that has permitted right this sort of a, a situation in which we find ourselves today? And many more examples could be added, of course, from the present. And I think the the answer is um, the way in which individual um, freedom, starting with, I mean, really individual religious freedom, um, are politically protected and legally enforced. 
which allows individuals, right, within the laws, whatever they happen to be at a certain time in a certain country, to believe and express themselves as they wish. That itself was, to look further back, the basically the modern liberal state's solution to the problem of unintended and conflictual relationships between uh, different Christian groups about how people should live and what they should care about and why. So to move then forward, right, conflicts in the Reformation era are resolved in a way by allowing people to believe and practice uh, as they wish. The state is going to draw the line and determine what public morality and public expressions are legitimate. But what happens when you know the the people in in general right no longer share enough of that substance uh, in in general in order to kind of keep the society going in an amicable way? And I think the answer is that uh, the social uh, and political debates become less than amicable. And I think that is the situation that we can see unfolding in the United States in in recent decades in particular. And resolvable? Well, that's that's another question. And I am often asked in one way or another uh, with respect to uh, my book, uh, you know, you've, you've, you've uh, given us a, a compelling analysis. I can see what you're saying, how we've gotten to where we are, but what next? You know, where do we go from here and how are we going to you know, tackle these problems? And that's the point at which I um, truthfully say, you know, I'm a historian. I try to understand the past and how we've gotten to the present. I'm not a policymaker. I'm not a fortune teller. I don't see into the future. Um, I will say, though, that it seems to me um, – uh, it seems to me difficult to see how, uh, given the kinds of um, deeply enforced sort of cultural expectations within the political uh, structures and, and guarantees that we have, it seems to me difficult to foresee how um, these kinds of uh, impasses that we've arrived at will be resolved other than by legislation that then will be, of course, enforced in, in terms of laws, but that there'll be a widespread consensus or near consensus even on these sorts of divisive issues. I just, it, it doesn't seem to me likely if we look at recent decades to suddenly think, well, in the year 2016 or 2018, clearly, you know, all the controversy about gun control or the tolerability of, of uh, graphically violent or explicit pornographic materials in our society, that's all going to go away because people will suddenly come together and agree about these things. I think that's very unlikely. Mm. But uh, it seems like the trajectory, um, the, the, the disputes, the disagreements, uh, the attempts at resolution during the Reformation period from this one worldview, the trajectory has been toward this hyperpluralism, right? And, and more and more fragmentation. Do you see that continuing, that trajectory? Um, it's a good, it's a good question. Um, I mean, the kind of logical extreme of that would be a sort of you know a literal atomization of everybody believes something different. Everybody wants to do. that. It seems to me is very unlikely. Human beings continue, and it, it would be a mistake also to exaggerate that even for the present. I mean, the the members of um, uh, social groups, voluntary social groups, uh, churches and synagogues, mosques, for example, in the religious domain, or voluntary um, uh, service organizations and so forth, the clubs that people join, the sorts of neighborhood interactions that people have and so forth. All of these are examples of shared commitments, right? They're in, in a smaller scale, but they certainly um, uh, you know, they certainly make us qualify any sort of uh, emphasis on a complete individualization or something like that. So I think, you know, those human beings, generally speaking, regardless of the culture or the time period we're looking at, right, 
people tend to want to congregate with and interact with and and share uh, certain values and priorities and and, and projects with those uh, of like mind. I think the, the the issue is more. It's not that that we're in ri- we're risking an, a complete individualization or, or total fragmentation. So much as it is that the kinds of things about which people disagree now require an extraordinarily surveillance and interventionist kind of state. I think in order to to preserve order, because if you're living in a society in which I think is I think I I myself think that that most fundamentally is what the abortion debate is about. At root, it's about who is a human being. That's a very profound and, and foundational question for people to be de- deeply divided about in a society. And I think you know, it can only be sustained to have a, a society that deeply divided about something that fundamental. If you've got very powerful, strongly bureaucratic uh, states in place to enforce the laws, A, and B, that you do have other things that almost everybody agrees on and participates in. And that's the emphasis in the book that I place on consumerism and consumption. Mm-hmm. That's, that's why I think you know, modern capitalism and consumption has the important place it does, because it helps hold together what otherwise is an, a more individualistic and, and fragmentary social reality. Interesting. Uh, we're going to be talking about that following a break. We're going to take a break now. Uh, the book is The Unintended Reformation, How a Religious Revolution Secularized Society. There's a paradox there, we'll, uh, and we've talked a little bit about that. We'll talk more about that and this idea of uh, consumerism, capitalism, as, as a, a, an important glue for us today. Um, our guest is Brad Gregory, USU alum. He's in uh, returning to Logan to give a presentation in the Tanner Talks series from the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences. The talk is today at noon in USU Library Room 101. Everyone is welcome, and you're welcome to join this conversation at upraxcess at gmail.com or commenting on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page, or you can reach us by telephone to 1-800-826-1495. More following a break. Don't put it off any longer. We're anxiously waiting to see your creativity. The entry deadline to submit your artwork for UPR's 2014 Mug Design Contest is this Monday, February 10th. Your original work, whether drawn, painted, or photographed, will be displayed and voted on by UPR listeners. But to have your design considered for the next UPR mug, you first have to submit it. Just go to upr.org for all the details. Some of the most innovative music from Celtic Roots is built around the rock of acoustic and electric bass. Hear players like Ricardo Del Fra and Alain Gentil on the Thistle and Shamrock. Tune in this Friday night at 9 o'clock. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and a Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering lunch items including veggie burgers with a lemon garlic aioli or lentil salad with tarragon vinaigrette. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest today is Brad Gregory. He is professor of history at Notre Dame University, and he is in Logan today to give a presentation in the Tanner Talks series from the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences. His talk is free and open to the public, and it's at noon today on the USU campus, the USU Library Room 101. His latest book is The Unintended Reformation, How a Religious Revolution Secularized Society. 
He says that uh, what we have today is a compartmentalization of history. If you're a medievalist, you look at uh, medieval Europe. If you're a modernist, you look at uh, uh, modern world. Uh, he says to understand our modern world, we need to better understand, uh, in this case, how the Reformation uh, affected the medieval world. And uh, those effects are still reverberating for us today. One of those effects we've been talking about is this increasing fragmentation. Uh, one worldview, in essence, in the medieval world that was ripped apart, disrupted in uh, the Reformation. And we're dealing with the effects uh, today. Um, and we're going to go, get into talking about capitalism and consumerism. He says that is an important glue for us uh, today. Holding, I guess, Professor Gregory, the, the position, I guess, religion would have been the the glue right. for people in the medieval world. And right. that, of course, in the Reformation came apart. Precisely. Uh, so we'll get into talking about that. He says European conflicts over Christian truth in the 16th and 17th centuries tore communities apart, led to fundamental changes in ideas, institutions, and practices that remain influential today. And he's discussing how the Reformation era led to modern Western societies held together by sovereign nations and shared practices of uh, consumption. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that last, shared practices of consumption. This has become more and more important, I guess, as, as a glue. Yeah, that's, that, that's my view. That's part of the argument that I made. And there, too, I think uh, it helps in certain ways uh, to see the, the deeper historical roots of, of how we got there. Uh, I teach a course at, at Notre Dame, and it's essentially a kind of um, uh, a pedagogical uh, expression of chapter five of my book called Manufacturing the Goods Life. The course is called Christianity, Commerce, and Consumerism, the Last 1,000 Years. And the question at the heart of the class is, how is it that a religious tradition for which avarice is one of the traditional deadly sins— gives rise to the most consumeristic, acquisitive societies in the history of, uh, of the planet. And uh, it's a complex uh, answer. It takes a whole semester to unfold, and it's a very compressed uh, 60 or so pages uh, in, in the book. But the short answer is that in the wake of the uh, disruptions and the violence of the religio-political conflicts of the Reformation era up through the Thirty Years' War and the English Revolution of the middle of the 17th century, uh, understandably, Christians on multiple sides of the respective uh, uh, doctrinal divides essentially decide that they would like to emphasize certain kinds of knowledge that are less controversial than arguing about theology, and that, uh, as one colleague put it to me, they would prefer to go shopping rather than continue to fight about religion. Uh, the pace-setting uh, nation in this respect is the, the new country at that point of the Dutch Republic, the Netherlands. And what's so interesting and, and, and unusual at the time about the Dutch Republic is the extent to which they still continue to support a, a, a public church, but they don't have a state-enforced religion like virtually all of the countries in Western Europe do at the time. And they do this in part uh, so that they can emphasize commerce rather than doctrinal uniformity. What's remarkable is that it succeeds dramatically in economic terms, and the Dutch Golden Age, the, the Netherlands of Rembrandt and Vermeer, becomes, even though it's very poor in natural resources, through commerce and trading and artisanal manufacture, uh, extraordinarily prosperous. That's essentially imitated by England, Britain, in the later 17th and into the 18th centuries, 
which of course then in uh, the 19th and 20th centuries passes the, the baton, so to speak, to the United States. So I think that insofar as we can see today, and think about this with respect to people you know, with very few exceptions, whether you're talking about the, the level of Walmart or you're talking about the level of Bloomingdale's, depending on somebody's income, regardless of what somebody believes about the questions about the meaning of life, whether they're religious believers or not, uh, how they, how they fall, come down on those controversial issues I was talking about uh, before that, that tend to divide and, 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 and fragment um, our political fabric, regardless of all those things, almost everyone thinks that the acquisition of more and better stuff is a good thing, that to acquire more things, uh, to replace things that you're no longer satisfied with is perfectly acceptable, to be wealthy is good, to have as much as you want is, is fine. Uh, these are extremely widespread, not only beliefs, but also, I think, that motivate practices in the United States. And I think it's it's pervasive from those with the, the least income to, to those with the highest. And my contention in the book is that, as you just put it a moment ago, uh, Tom, that, that um, in a certain sense, in terms of providing a certain kind of cohesion amidst our uh, fragmentary social uh, fabric, that uh, consumerism of this kind has essentially taken the place of, of religion in the United States. And this is something the United States exports, right? This is, this is Absolutely. part, uh, and decried by some that this is so, part of what makes the, the, the ideal of the U.S. the ideal, right? And that's, that's what exactly. some people aspire to. They want to be like the U.S. in in that way. That's right. I mean, it's almost, I mean, it's, it's certainly not coextensive with uh, American understandings of freedom that are then exported, but certainly the American understanding of, of kind of preferential self-determined freedom includes the freedom to buy as much stuff as you want up to your credit limit without concern or care, if, if you so choose, for anybody else. I mean, you are, you are completely constitutionally free to buy as much as you want without a concern, for example, about, say, whether anybody else has even enough to eat that day mm. or a house to live in. It's perfectly legal to buy a third vacation home, even though we know there are millions of people in our, in our country who are homeless. Mm. So... Pop culture would fit in here, wouldn't it? It's very tied to this idea of Absolutely. consumerism and exactly. capitalism. That's also part of yes. the, uh, U.S. export. Precisely. Um, oh, it all fits. That's that's yeah. one of my yeah. one of my claims in the book is a great deal can be fit within this uh, this this long term understanding of historical transformation. So I could imagine, and I don't know if this is true, at least in the medieval world, uh, and I don't know if everybody was a believer. But at least you had to give lip service to it, right? Right. Uh, to this ideal of Christianity. But at least there were some ideals that you aspired to collectively as a culture. Absolutely. Now, uh, and I'm sure many would would say, you know, the, the pop culture. You know, we don't. Want, <laughs> that's that's not aspirational. Is it's there? But uh, where are the things we aspire to? Well, this is. I mean, this is the thing. Except for, I, I think it's very difficult to find anything even approaching consensus or a widespread majority view on this this matter precisely because of what we were talking about before, the fragmentary disagreement about the very objectives of what a human life should be and so forth. I mean, ideally in the Middle Ages, again, the, I want to stress that the gap between actual practices and, and realities on the one hand and prescriptions and ideals on the other was often enormous and recognized as such. I mean, that's where the impulses for 
the constant impulses really for reforming the church and so forth in the Middle Ages come from. And the Reformation is in a certain sense a, a kind of extension of that that continues the impulse for reform, but with the critical difference, rejects the foundational claims that the church is making about what Christianity is. I mean, it, it, that's, the, that's the key disagreement. So um, I think the, that now, in terms of uh, content, it's, it's difficult even uh, to, to find, well, you, you would ask, another way of ask, asking the question would be, you know, well, what would Americans say is the common good in the United States now? Besides kind of a, a I think, a vague uh, desire to make sure that the economy keeps uh, running and that political circumstances are stable, um, and even that is, is somewhat controversial because some people are critical, as we were suggesting before, about the ways in which certain aspects of American economic aspirations and practices are exported overseas. Um, I, I think it's very difficult to come up with that exactly for the reason of the hyperpluralism because you, in a certain sense you have to have right, agreement about what basic principles and goods are, not just abstract principles or formal principles like freedom, but how you exercise your freedom. Because how people actually live their lives is what shapes social reality, not just a commitment to freedom per se. How people exercise their freedom differs dramatically, and the, the product of that is the kind of situation that we find ourselves in today. We're uh, talking with Brad Gregory on the program today. Uh, he is a professor of history at Notre Dame. He is a USU alum and is back in Logan for a lecture today. It's in the Tanner Talk series from the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences, and the talk is today at noon, USU Library Room 101. His latest book is The Unintended Reformation, How a Religious Revolution Secularized Society. And you're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. And you can uh, comment on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page, Utah Public Radio Facebook page. I want to talk a little bit about the title. There's a paradox there, the unintended right. Reformation. Uh, the Reformers, you know, Martin Luther couldn't have envisioned a, no. and, he, and certainly didn't want no. a secular society, but that's what happened. Yeah, that's right. And it, you're, you're absolutely right. It is a paradox. It's uh, intended as such in the title. Um, the... The, the the Reformation starts very much, first of all, not as an impulse at all to, to establish a separate or an alternative church, but as far as Luther is concerned, to reform the, the one and only church there is. I mean, he's just as aware of those passages in the New Testament that talk about there being only one church, one faith, one baptism, and so forth, and the writings of St. Paul. So he's not trying to establish a different or alternative church for you know people who might prefer this rather than the other. He wants to reform the one church that there is, and uh, the, the way that things unfold between 1517 and 1521, push comes to shove, and at a certain point, uh, Luther is both—he's um, condemned formally uh, for his views, and he reciprocally refuses to recant them um, and decides that, as, as far as he can see and as, as far as he's concerned, uh, the, that the pope is not the vicar of Christ, the representative of Christ, but is the antichrist. Um, Luther's insistence that the Bible alone function as the sole authority for uh, Christian faith and life in, in matters of, of doctrine and, and morals when, when push comes to shove 
is um, taken up by others, the, the difficulty, and, and what I argue in the book is the unwitting deep source of our hyperpluralism is the fact that right from the very beginning, from the early 1520s, there are all kinds of, of competing views on crucial issues that prove to be socially and politically divisive about how the Bible should be interpreted. I mean, it's one thing to say the Bible is the word of God. It's another thing to say, and therefore, right, our worship surface should be like this. We should be related to the state like that. Here's how ministers should exercise their authority. Women should behave thus and so in the church, and so, and so on and so forth. These things are tremendously divisive. What happens in the course of the Reformation era is because religion is this unintended source of conflict and controversy, the eventual solution is essentially, to put it provocatively, the invention of religion in a modern sense. By that I mean the identification of religion as something that you believe interiorly, these are the things I assent to, how you worship, what what community you choose to worship with and how, and also whatever individual devotional practices you might uh, choose to participate in, prayer practices, Bible groups, and so forth and so on. What's different about that compared to the Middle Ages and indeed to the Reformation era itself, that religion has been identified as something that can be separated and abstracted from, for example, the way that power is exercised or the way that family life is organized or the way that social relationships are expected to unfold or indeed the way that economic exchange is is supposed to take place. Once you've done that, you've in a sense created a kind of public space for the unfolding and the development of all those other things quite apart from religion. In other words, right, in order to solve a problem that arises out of religious conflict, you've created a situation in which there can be secularization, depending on how people choose to, to uh, exercise their, eventually, their, their politically protected individual rights. Uh, and one of the outgrowths of this, and of course this is, we're telescoping it, it took, sure. it took a long time to, to, to make this happen, or not to make it happen, to what, see, it, see it develop. Um, there's there's come to be uh, I guess a stronger and stronger strain of uh, secularism, uh, people yeah. who don't subscribe to any religious view, and uh, and that's gotten into academia and other other parts of our educational system. A, an idea of an incompatibility of religion, religious ideas, right. profession of faith, and uh, what's come to be maybe more relied upon in in many circles, and that is science, the natural sciences. Right. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a, an important uh, uh, line of argumentation also in the book, particularly in the very first chapter. Um, the, the narrative, and this has been played up in, in recent years, especially uh, in, in the public arena by the so-called new atheists, the, the narrative that you know, once upon a time people didn't know any better, they were religious, and then when people started to discover how the world really is and did so through science, um, religion... <clears throat> excuse me, lost its credibility, its plausibility, that the more and more that science explains about the natural world, the less room there is for God and, and belief in, in uh, the sorts of claims that are made by religion. This is a very widespread common view. Uh, it's also a view that I argue in the book is mistaken. It's not the increasing ability of science to explain natural phenomena that's, that is the reason for that, but the underlying assumptions about what conception of God you have in relationship to the natural world. If God, if, if, if God is being conceived essentially as a sort of highest hypothetical being who seems in some t- at some times to have an influence on, on events in a manner analogous to other natural causes, uh, 
Well, then you've set up a situation in which the more that science explains, the less room or even possibility there is for God, because in fact, God is being conceived as one hypothetical quasi-natural cause among others. Um, that is actually a, a presupposition that I argue in the book has its origins in the late Middle Ages and is more or less taken for granted by most of the major thinkers that created what we usually think of as the modern mechanistic scientific worldview in the 17th century. So the, the underlying assumptions combined with the religious conflicts of the Reformation era are what precipitate this change. And it's later uh, 18th, 19th, and, and 20th century interpreters looking back who say, you know, what's really going on here is just religion is losing its credibility and science is explaining more and more. Given a, a cert, a, a, an alternative understanding of God, a, an understanding of God actually that is uh, more consistent with the way in which um, God was understood by uh, the patristic writers of the early church, by medieval theologians, at least up through Thomas Aquinas, um, there's no problem whatsoever. The more, and, the, the more and more that science explains about the natural world simply tells us more unexpected things about, in theological terms, God's creation. It can't make any less room for God because God doesn't need any room. In that in that conceptualization, so that's that's a bit I know it's a bit kind of a technical point. It's even more technical in the book. Fair warning to readers, but <laughs> but it's a crucial way of of trying to I think amend what is a widely uh, a widely believed but in in my view a mistaken claim about the historical relationship of science and religion. Hmm. We just have a couple of minutes left, um, and I want to have you talk a, a little bit about your final chapter, which I believe mm -hmm. is titled "Against Nostalgia." Right. What are you talking about there? Yeah, against nostalgia, because um, I'm mindful of the extent to which uh, a book like this that uh, is is sort of unabashedly, but I think also accurately, uh, critical of certain aspects of our contemporary world and the, and the difficulties in which we find ourselves, sometimes is coupled with, a, with a, uh, an expectation or the accusation on the part of readers or reviewers that, well, you must be hankering uh, for a return to this uh, pre-modern world. And particularly if you're a Catholic writing about this, right, you must think that the Catholic Middle Ages was some kind of a perfect golden age or something like that. That's not at all the case. And I thought I would try to forestall that by titling my concluding uh, my conclusion, my concluding chapter against nostalgia. In other words, I'm, I'm in no sense returning that we should or can, for that matter, return to any point in the past. I mean, time only moves in one direction, at least as human beings experience it. So all we can do is try to take stock of our situation in as clear-eyed a way as we can and uh, try to look toward the future in a, in a hopeful and hopefully a constructive way. But I think we ought to do that with uh, as clear an understanding of how we got to where we are as we can, and, and that's what I try to do in the book. So it's not a call to return to anything in the past. It's, it's not a nostalgic yearning for how things used to be. Past peoples had their serious problems as well, and we have our own. We will leave it there. Uh, the uh, book is The Unintended Reformation. And we've been talking with Notre Dame history professor Brad Gregory, who's also a Utah State University alum. He's back in Logan for a lecture. It's in the Tanner Talk series from the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences. The talk is uh, today at noon, USU Library, Room 101. Should mention here at the, at the end, uh, you give a shout out to your pro old professor, uh, Len Rosenband. They, uh, dedicate the book in part to him. Absolutely. Uh, Len was a, a, a critically formative influence uh, on my, my formation as an undergraduate, and I'm, I'm, I'm really blessed that we have remained close, and he's been a valued colleague for years. Um, and uh, thank you for listening to Access Utah. Appreciate it. 
Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, listen to the adventure of Bobby Donahue, a Park City boy who, at the age of 13, ran away to fight in the 1898 Spanish-American War. First this. The Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by the Utah Humanities Council with support from a We the People grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. Any parent who has ever lost a youngster in a crowd can imagine Park City resident Bridget Donahue's panic when she couldn't find her 13-year-old son, Bobby. Believing he had gone to nearby Heber in the fall of 1898, Bridget must have been very surprised when she learned that Bobby had actually traveled all the way to the Philippine Islands in the Western Pacific Ocean. In fact, when Bobby Donahue returned the following year, he wore a military uniform and was the youngest unofficial veteran of the Spanish-American War. The United States declared war on Spain on April 25, 1898, after the USS Maine exploded in Havana Harbor in February. Likely inspired by newspaper reports of the war and a boy's patriotic sense of adventure, Bobby boarded a westbound train determined to participate in the grand little war before it ended. After reaching San Francisco, he stowed aboard a ship bound for the Philippines, but was found out and tossed off the steamer before it departed. Undeterred, he snuck back on board and remained hidden until the ship set sail. Becoming hungry, Bobby emerged from hiding and was discovered by the ship's captain. When the ship finally reached Manila, Bobby remained locked in a cabin. Still determined to join the war, he removed the rubber tubing from his porthole, jumped into the water, and swam to shore. When he found friends from Park City among the American troops, they declared Bobby their official mascot, and he remained with his Utah comrades for the majority of the war. Though it occurred before 24-hour news coverage, local newspapers loved the story. When the company returned to Utah in August 1899, Bobby, or Robert as he had matured into, received a hero's welcome. We don't know what happened when his mother got a hold of him, but in November, Bobby Donahue received a Medal of Honor from Utah's first state governor, Heber M. Wells. Research and writing for this episode of the Beehive Archive were done by Emily Beeson. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, KCEU 89.7 Price, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan.